Well, welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. We've been doing quite a few technology-focused discussions recently, uh, so it's been quite a while since I teamed up with subject matter experts from hard-to-abate sectors. To address that, I'm joined today by two stalwarts from the coal sector. Andrew Jones is the Argus Coal Editor in Asia, and Sabia Mishra is the Business Head at JSW International. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> so, Andrew, let, let, let's kick off. So, coal is a sector which has come into sharp focus in recent years. Can you give a brief overview of the sector for people who don't know it, and, and many of our listeners won't? Yeah, sure. As you say, the coal industry as a whole, there's a lot of focus on that in recent years. It's got a reputation as a dirty fuel, and obviously there's a big push for cleaner energy and to move away from that. That said, coal still plays a very, very important role in generation mix, certainly in this part of the world, in Asia Pacific. And I don't really see that changing in the near term, at least. It's a 7 billion tonne plus a year market. China dominates the market, really. It's the world's largest producer. It's the world's largest consumer and the world's largest importer. So what happens in China obviously has a big impact on the overall market. India is another big consumer. North Asia, such as Japan and Korea and Taiwan, also consume a lot of coal. The big producers are Indonesia, Australia, South Africa, Colombia, to name a few. And yeah, in a nutshell, that's the that's the sort of coal market, really. Thanks. Thanks. Appreciate that. So, Sabio, while the investment community has been writing off the market since the turn of the decade, Old King Coal has been looking really sprightly recently for pricing. There's a pretty clear east-west divide on prices with ARA, obviously Amsterdam, uh, Antwerp, Rotterdam prices, threatening an all-time high again, whilst in India and China, they've kind of pulled back since the February spike. Do you see that as purely the effect of the Ukraine conflict, and is it likely to persist? Hey, team. I, I think currently we are in a geopolitics, which is making it very, very different market dynamics for coal. You said correctly, uh, the European uh, economies are struggling with the energy situation there. There is a shortage. And to that alternate, they are uh, looking for coal to replace from countries like US, countries like Colombia, countries like South Africa, even some of mm. the Indonesian coals. And Australian coals have started flowing in that direction. So the demand from Europe is definitely stronger compared to other markets. So, Andrew, is there any consensus on the long-term effect of gas flow redirection from west to east? And, and, and is that likely to pull down an eastern hemisphere demand for coal? Could it embolden fuel switching? Is it of that sort of level? That's a really interesting question, actually. Whether there's a long-term consensus developing yet, I'm not too sure. I would say probably not. Obviously, coal to gas switching is purely a mechanism of of price, or at at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, is which fuel is more economical than the other. Obviously, we've got some very obvious geopolitical issues going on around the world. And, you know, we we are going to see more gas finding its way coming from west to east. But at the same time, we're also seeing more coal moving from west to east. Mm. And that coal is being made available to the Asian market at very steeply discounted prices. So that obviously skews the economics of a, of a pure economical coal to gas switching sort of dynamic. So, yeah, I don't think there's a firm consensus on it at the moment, but it's clearly a market dynamic that's that needs to be watched very, very carefully, I think, in the coming months. Thanks. I'm going to stick with you for a second. So. 
obviously a lot of discussions around net zero at the moment, rightly. And it's material to coal use to understand that countries like Finland are going for, they're bringing that forward, not 2050, it's 2035 there. And most Western countries are targeting 2050. And there's an east-west divide with China extending their journey to 2060, India's looking to 2070. So their cutoff dates are much further out, almost 50 years uh, into the future. The Western sell-by date's much closer, clearly. Does the market see the prospect of eastern cutoff dates being brought forward? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you note the east-west divide. And yes, things are, I mean, we've seen it generally in coal use, right, with the, the phase out of coal in mm. Europe has happened a lot more quickly. And it seems to be a, a very different sort of mentality and sort of outlook on that. But it is interesting to note, we are seeing things starting to move in uh, in Asia as well. As recently as this week, Malaysian utility TNB announced plans to accelerate its decarbonisation plans by phasing out some of its coal-fired capacity earlier than previously scheduled. It's also talking about getting plants hydrogen ready. I think the date that was mentioned was 2029. So, yeah, there is that east-west divide. We're also seeing Indonesia. I mean, as I say, Indonesia is, is the world's largest thermal coal exporter. Yeah. There's, there's government plans there that are, that, that are very much in the sort of nascent stages. But towards coal gasification, the government is, in, is offering incentives there for companies that, you know, looking to get, get more involved in the downstream sector. So I think things are moving in that direction, probably not as quickly as things are coming into focus in the West, but that that, that sort of the mentality is is shifting towards cleaner energy for sure. Yeah. So Sabia, obviously we're talking about some very big tectonic shifts and fundamentals and supply and demand basics. As a coal trader, how much or, or, or how inter and intraday focused do you have to be to actually make money in this market? <laughs> that's uh, That's, I think, a million dollar question. I think you need to be in this geopolitics, which I explained earlier, that has made the price dichotomy even wider. So prices are moving in one direction for coals heading to Western hemisphere, whereas the price is different when it comes to the Asian uh, side of the business. And uh, But both have influence on each other and many a times uh, quite puzzling influences, which you cannot really predict well. Mm. So that's why I think business has become more spot in nature. Just to give you some examples, uh, a lot of these tenders in Vietnam, which used to come out on Newcastle linked pricing until uh, 2021, really don't have any correlation now to the Newcastle pricing anymore because at those kind of pricing, the power plants are not able to generate power at a price at which they can sell the power at. Hmm. So uh, given that they have now reconsidered the tenders to be on ICI-linked or Indonesian coal index-linked pricing because of this dichotomy. So obviously, as a trader, you need to be very vigilant about the kind of positions you are taking and which index you are taking, and it can change very quickly. So being top of top of your positions, uh, making sure that you buy at the right time, liquidate at the right time, which will require a lot of intraday focus as well, uh, has become routine of the day, I would say. That's, that's how it has become. Understood. Yeah, I suppose the reason I ask is because it's it's difficult at the moment because on the one hand, you have to focus on the day to day. But in the near term future, you can see that there are these other future markets waiting in the wings. and It's difficult to hold in uh, in mind at the same time, I would assume. And the other thing is, I suppose, that you consider yourself not too much coal trader as an energy trader uh, overall. And so you've got to keep an eye on what's coming down the pike. <laughs> 
Absolutely. I think also, I mean, any geopolitics or any other influence which drives the price ups, up and down also provides a lot of opportunity for a trader. Mm. So part of the time goes into looking at those opportunities. Uh, for example, Europe is buying a lot of coal, but not enough coal is being made available at the kind of CV that they're looking for. Yeah. So some of the uh, new areas, like for example, we had started looking at some coals from Tanzania for moving into Europe. So that is a new origin that that we have started looking at because that, that has some high CV coals, yeah. but but the pricing could work only at a certain price, which uh, which currently Europe is willing to pay. Yeah. And some of those miners have started providing coal out of those uh, originations. So yes, uh, opportunities also are there. But as I said, you have to be quite agile on your feet to move from an opportunity to another opportunity and not be stuck in one for <laughs> a longer period of time. So. Good stuff. So let, let's say into the hydrogen bit. So when people are discussing net zero, obviously there's no coal in that end state. But at the same time, we don't go straight to net zero. And in the energy transition east of Suez, coal's been coming up into the conversation as a way to produce blue hydrogen via gasification combined with carbon capture and storage. So just as some sort of background to this, existing hydrogen production obviously has to be decarbonized first. And, and India, India and China have really significant coal gasification volumes of hydrogen, uh, which produces about 20 kilograms of carbon dioxide for every kilogram of hydrogen, which they also have in parallel with steam methane reformers, which are about 11 to 1. And we have seen some fuel switching happening recently. Air Liquid announced uh, they're building two SMRs with carbon capture and storage in Shanghai Chemical Plant, and that's displacing unabated coal gasification supply. New build SMRs can capture more carbon dioxide uh, than existing ones. But I suppose when we talk about decarbonized hydrogen markets, that market starts with existing SMRs retrofitted with CCS. And I really wanted to talk to you guys about this. Um, so they produce about three kilograms to every kilogram of hydrogen. But new build coal gasification with CCS can do about half of that, about one and a half kilograms to every one. And not only that. Andrew, you were just talking about this. The cost of production in, in Indonesia using Indonesian coal is around four, $4 per kilogram via coal gasification with carbon capture and storage. And that compares extremely favorably with natural gas fed steam methane reformers with CCS in Japan. It's around eight kilograms. So about half, half the cost. Sabia, I'm going to ask you. I know some countries like Indonesia are looking into this. For people that actually have coal assets at the moment, is this a widening discussion? Are more people talking about whether they can use their coal not only for export, but also domestically? And if so, with carbon capture and storage uh, for hydrogen or even just CCS in, in existing power plants? Yes, they are definitely looking at domestic usage of coal more and more. That is, in a way, brings in that, OK, you are not transporting large volumes of carbon across the oceans. Uh, so to that extent, yes, it is a good step forward. But on the carbon capture and storage part, uh, I would say maybe the discussions are not so uh, loud at this point in time, mm. guys, I'm talking to. Maybe there's work in progress in the background, but I don't see very large discussions around that space at this point in time. It was probably happening one and a half years back, but uh, with the current demand back on coal, and everybody had a good stint of last 12 months to 18 months on the coal demand side. I think that discussion has probably taken a little backseat as for me. Yes, and, uh, understood. But yes, I am sure it will again come to the forefront uh, once the demand situation stabilizes. 
And again, on the point about the earlier point, which uh, Andrew was making about the West and East divide on where they want to be and when they want to be net zero. So there mm-hmm. I think the take is not about so much about East and West divide. It's more about it's uh, where the country is in terms of its economic uh, growth. And uh, so I think there are the countries like China and India. They have seen that, that beyond a certain pricing of electricity, it's not possible for the average consumer to take it in anymore. So so that India has recently realized that because they started talking about banning on import of coal. Then suddenly there was a huge shortages in various ports, various plants, and the electricity prices really shot up because there was a lot of blackouts and it touched almost nine rupees per unit. And then suddenly at that price, the retail customers just not able to take anymore and they had to intervene and put a ceiling on what can be the maximum price in the exchange. So, so obviously in developing economies, those are the real practical challenges. They all, move, yeah. they all want to move towards a net zero. Don't get me wrong. That is the, everybody wants that. But uh, in the journey that they are in currently, uh, they also have to worry about whether they can afford to move towards that at a much higher pace than what they're committing to. So, so it's yeah. more of a balancing act. Whereas some countries like Finland or Norway who are already zero on coal usage, uh, so they're probably in a in a uh, in the curve they're way ahead in terms of that journey. So I think each country is in a different journey, and we need to respect where they where they stand in that journey. Mm. So I was talking just just then about how the the cost of production of hydrogen from different routes is is quite different. Say uh, coal gasification in Indonesia at four dollars, SMR with carbon capture and storage in Japan at eight dollars. But obviously transportation is a problem. It's all very well producing low cost hydrogen, but getting it to a user is an issue, which is where decarbonized ammonia uh, comes in. So Andrew, you talk to a wide number of uh, of coal market participants. Is ammonia still a peripheral, well, sorry, I should say decarbonized ammonia. Is decarbonized ammonia still a peripheral interest or is it rising up the agenda or is it just too far out for focus at the moment? Again, that's a very interesting question. The people that, that I speak to, it seems to be a mixed sort of view, really. It's certainly on the horizon. And it's something that people are starting to take a lot of notice of. Um, I think, and uh, Savio, please correct me if you disagree, but I think the coal market tends to be sort of steeped with tradition. It, it doesn't particularly change that quickly. So while people are sort of taking note of what's happening, you know, I think it's it's very much still on the periphery mm-hmm. at the moment. Yep, understood. And I think, I mean, I worked in the steel markets for a long time before, and they're sort of traditional markets. But when change happens, it it does suddenly yeah. come all, all of a sudden. Absolutely. Well, let me let me stick with you and ask you another question quickly. So Japan and Korea are looking at co-firing ammonia, with some targeting a fifth, a fifth use, 20% by 2025 uh, and 50% by 2030. And we had not so long ago the JIRA tender, which is for 500,000 tons a year of ammonia. Obviously, that's an, a very unusual date, um, tender because it's it far dated. Did that have a, any impact on the trading community, on the coal trading community? Did people sit up or is it just too far out? No, I think people are taking notice. I mean, these are big uh, Japan and Korea 
our big traditional sort of coal buyers. I mean, Japan is, is a more than a mil- 100 million ton a year market. Mm-hmm. South Korea is, is 95.5 million tons last year. Wow. So these are big sort of traditional coal markets. So when you start to see them look at other sort of cleaner sort of fuels, cleaner technologies, people do take notes. I think it's interesting to know, you know, going back to what Savia said, you know, a few minutes ago about the different economies and where they are in their sort of economic growth journeys. Obviously, uh, Japan and Korea, uh, uh, you know, in Asia are probably more sort of mature. So we, we're, we're probably going to see these sort of things happening probably more quickly there. But it's certainly being taken note of. So, so yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add to that, I think it's more about uh, a lot of these requires a government policy change, right? So yeah, I think uh, there, these kind of changes are very good, uh, which you read about uh, already happening in probably Japan and Korea more than probably in other places in Asia. But yeah, those are the government policy initiatives which uh, need to come in to incentivize people to switch to ammonia as a fuel or hydrogen as a overall basket. So I still see a lack of effort in other parts of Asia yet to come up with a proper policy framework which can be practically implementable. And I think they would take leaf out of these uh, developments in Japan and Korea. And I'm hoping yeah. that will trigger more uh, more government policy initiatives in that sector. Yeah, I was just doing a, a panel at the Future Energy Conference in, in, in Thailand. And it was interesting because I was just looking at the ASEAN policy versus Japan, Korea, New Zealand, Oceania, you know, China. So it's very, very clear that the ASEAN bloc has no... Uh, sort of national policy, no targets, no funding, not no funding, but not, not of the same type of intensity. And it, it, it's, it, it's, yeah, it, it's a notable difference. And there was some discussion there about whether people thought that was an overt policy and, and whether the strength of policy in places in demand centers like Japan and Korea was enough to incentivize the ASEAN bloc to do similar things. From a trader's perspective, Sabia, is there much positioning going on? Clearly, the Japanese trading houses have been instructed to go and find supply. Are others racing to do the same? I saw, for example, Australia Square Resources. They just signed up to do the supply and sorry to do the marketing for Australian Future Energy's Gladstone project, uh, which is uh, it's a coal-based project. Are others looking to um, secure supply of ammonia? I think the large trading houses like Trafigura, I was talking to some of my colleagues, I won't say colleagues, my counterparts there. I think they, there is a uh, specific initiative to move in that direction and see how a trader can play a role in terms of uh, the logistics side of the, uh, the value chain or what kind of investments that can be made by a trading company to play a role in the uh, in the green energy sector, including ammonia. So I think, yeah, uh, companies are taking steps to at least understand better the value chain and the policies in various countries and how they can play a meaningful role as a trading company. So, yes, it is happening, but I won't say it is pervasive. It is more uh, sporadic and uh, limited to the large multinational companies who have more exposure to the technology and the learnings uh, already happening at more on the developed country side. I would, I would be more excited to see the ammonia usage happening in the ships. Those are not at least regulated by the governments and uh, the ship owners can start using it more to uh, really show to the world 
how it's uh, how it's helping so since uh, in my discussions with the ship owners i see a lot of ship owners actually looking to use this uh, going forward which yep. is very uh, which is a very welcome news because that's at least will show showcase to the world that yeah it's already working in in ships and why it can be replicated more meaningfully in the ground levels you know so Hmm. So I'll ask both of you, obviously, people who are involved in today's ammonia market um, see it developing a certain way as energy sort of coal uh, focused people. Do you think ammonia is likely to be a, a pure play commodity? Do you think it, companies would be shipping specifically within an Asian context, both coal and ammonia, or would they be separate, se- separate things? Sabia, do you want to have a go at that? I think I'm hazarding a guess here. I uh, <laughs> I don't I, it's difficult to predict how it's going to be, but I would say that how we have seen the other energies like the gas and coal or the coal and uh, oil uh, kind of thing, other energy sources, I would say ammonia probably would add to that list. Each mm. will have their interplays. Obviously, there'll be spreads, etc., which may link one to the other, but I don't think coal and ammonia have to coexist as a bundled product. Each yeah. one can be separate but can have a correlation with each other that's what yeah uh, i feel yeah okay well we, we should wrap this up shortly let me just ask a couple of other quick questions actually sabri i'll stay with you and, and just ask is there anything and, and it's a genuine question because i haven't been watching closely uh, what is jsw doing in the hydrogen or ammonia or, or e-methanol space are, are you involved at the moment are you, are you is the company looking to be involved in it yeah, yeah. JSW Energy has very ambitious plans in the hydrogen space, which includes ammonia. In fact, their and their uh, renewables section is expanding, and so I think the percentage of the renewables in the mix is also going up steadily. So yeah. there is a there is a clear focus of JSW Energy to grow in the hydrogen space. It's a lot of good work happening there. Though I'm not yeah. directly involved, but I keep hearing about uh, the same from my colleagues. Yes. And I've got to ask you is actually as well <laughs> while we're talking about that. Have have you done the um a lot of people set tend to be setting up sort of specific low carbon or energy transition um business units. Is that a similar thing at JSW? Yes, yes, they are uh, definitely looking at yeah. it. Andrew, soon we'll be having ammonia costs being added to our, our publication. I wanted to ask, obviously it, it it's it, it's something which is um people are aware of in, in the coal community. Would, would your readers be interested in seeing things on there between deltas, between ammonia and coal, or is it very much focused on inter-intraday stuff at the moment? No, I think people would be very interested. There's, as I say, a lot more people are starting to take notes in the, in the coal industry generally, in the trading, you know, in the, tra- the trading community, the generators. So, yeah, I think that there would be interest. I mean, obviously, these things, as you know, you know, working in energy publishing, you know, the, the things take take time to sort of become accepted and embedded. But, you know, I think this is this is the right time. We're at the, we're at the start of the sort of curve, if you like. Yep. So I, th- I think it would be, it certainly would be of interest. Yep. Well, we're out of time. So thanks to you both for coming in today. And Argus, Hydrogen and Future Fuels will return.